I'm Lisa Stone, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. Welcome to the Parenting Aces podcast, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and I have a great guest this week. I'm really excited to bring Kim Bastable to you, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about her before I bring her on camera. But before we go there, just a quick reminder, if you haven't joined us as a premium member yet, what are you waiting for? You're missing all kinds of really great opportunities and discounts, so I hope you'll go to Parenting Aces. And click on the join button, look at the different options available to you and click on one of those. It's cheaper than one hour with your tennis pro. It's a great bargain. And like I said, you get some great uh, discounts, some great opportunities being part of our premium membership. Also, we've got a new shop online, so if you're looking for some Parenting Aces merch, we've got it available for you. Go to parentingaces.com shop. You can purchase it through our Instagram, through our Facebook as well, and I hope you'll take a look and uh, wear our new stuff. It's kind of cool. I'm excited about it. So um, with that, let me tell you a little bit about this week's podcast guest. Kim Bastable is the Director of Professional Tennis Management at the University of Florida School of Health and Human Performance. She is passionate about molding future tennis coaches to be great leaders who think of tennis as more than just a game. She considers tennis to be a tool of good health and strong well-being and is committed to educating this next generation of tennis leaders. Kim's been in the world of tennis for over 50 years. She's mentored and led athletes and coaches on court, off the court, in the classroom. She was a Division I All-American player at the University of Florida, and she's been a coach, as I said, at the high school level, at the Division I college level, at the club level. And she's also been a mental toughness and performance coach for the last 10 years. She has a master's of ed in positive coaching and athletic leadership from the University of Missouri, a bachelor of science in finance from the University of Florida, and she's got certifications from the Human Performance Institute as a mental toughness specialist and from peak performance sports as a mental game coach and from Notre Dame University as an executive in leadership. I mean, this woman is unbelievably accomplished, unbelievably knowledgeable, and we are so lucky to have her on the Parenting Aces podcast. Let me bring Kim on. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. There we are. Hey, Kim, nice to see you. Oh, nice to see you, Lisa. Super excited to have this time with you. Me too. And I want to just remind our viewers slash listeners, if you are listening to this, the video version is available on ParentingAces.com and on our YouTube channel. So if you'd like to put faces to voices, go check out the video. That said, Kim, I'm going to ask you the same question I ask most of our guests the first time they come on the pod, which is, how did you get started in tennis? Tell us a little bit of your backstory. 
Well, the kind of the fun backstory of me uh, is when I was six years old, I actually went out my back door and there were some courts back there. I actually backed up to a country club, fortunately, and I walked to those courts and this is in the 1970s, 60s, all those 60s. Um, and I was in, introduced to the game and I, I really just fell in love. It was, you know, the boom had started. And so by the time I was about eight, I don't remember eight or nine, my coach said, you know, play in a tournament and against this other girl at my club. And neither one of us could hardly serve. And we were playing with, you know, cut off wood rackets and we really hardly knew what we were doing. So we went and played a match. We were serving from the base or from the service line, barely even getting it in. Anyway, there was before the tiebreaker. We couldn't even just, nobody could get enough points to win the match. So we finally <laughs> went back to the coach and said, what do we do? He flipped a coin and I won. So that's oh. the first victory. And I think it set me on my way. She actually ended up going and playing in college as well. So it didn't set her back, but it's just the way things were back then that we were so excited to play. And that was back in Kansas City where I grew up, uh, played in Missouri Valley, was a Valley champion. And and ended up playing at Florida, which was really fun. I, I had a, a great career at Florida, uh, but I did have somewhat of a situation of, of dealing with anxiety as a player as I came up through juniors. I really started to feel that expectation about playing. And so I, I kind of had limited performance as a player in college. And ultimately, the anxiety really drove me from the game. And that's my sad story is that I, you know, as a returning All-American, as a senior in college, I, I didn't think I wanted to play professionally, and I just, just kind of made the decision to, you know, get a real job, so to speak. Um, and I, I got out of tennis, and it was one of those, I look back now, and I think, wow, why did I give up that opportunity? But I ultimately did have a real job for a short time and ended up back into tennis coaching. I, I coached at Kansas in the early, in the early years right after that, um, and then was in multiple different positions. And yeah, then I recently, I maybe 10 plus years ago, got a master's in education, which led me back to my alma mater. You know, by then online learning had happened. I'm still living in the Midwest, uh, so I don't have to live in, in Florida, but I do get to work. And, and this opportunity to run the professional tennis management program at Florida, which is fully online, is super fun and really a, a dream job. Yeah, I love it. Can, do you have any memories of your parents' involvement, if any, in your tennis as you were coming up? 100%. I mean, I had a mom that was as solid as a rock. I can remember the stories. Back then, you had to figure out how to move from one level to the next. What was it? You had to qualify for sectionals, they called it. And I can remember my mom coming to me after I played a match and said, I was talking to this mom over there while you were playing. And she told me that if you played in this tournament up in Dubuque and you won a match, you would qualify for something called sectionals. Do you want to go? And I'm like, the Dubuque, Iowa? I have no idea what that. I'm like, but yeah. sure, mom. So it was like she was the advocate, was figuring out the system because this was before, you know, we had coaches that were really so involved. But Probably I was 11 at that time. And, you know, shortly thereafter, I ended up with a coach that was quite helpful. But my parents were very solid. My dad was always very, very excited. Um, he didn't get to watch as much, but he did travel when he could. I would say they were solid. But at some level, you know, they enjoyed me being good. I would say that. Dad yeah. took some, particularly took some pride in it. I think when I earned my All-America certificate, they gave me two copies. And I was able to give one to put on, the, on dad to his office wall. So Aww. he was pretty happy 
that. That's kind of cool. Um, yeah, it sounds like uh, they really kind of attacked it in the right way. And and I love the piece about your mom talking to the other mom. Really, things haven't changed all that much. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of chatter parent to parent, which is, I think, why Parenting Aces is still around after 10 years. Parents really rely on other parents for getting information because things change so rapidly in the world of junior tennis, as you know, um, that oftentimes the coaches just they don't have the time to keep up or they don't have the desire to keep up, whatever it is. But, you know, ultimately, the responsibility lies with the player. And then before the player is old enough to handle it, it falls on the parents. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I know when I was coaching if I wasn't coaching enough competitive juniors, I actually made the conscious decision. It wasn't really worth it for me as a coach to keep up with all the intricate details because they did change so frequently. And, Mm -hmm. and I felt it was information that became outdated so quickly. And, you know, when you have, you know, 10 and under players and women and you're coaching all levels, it's, not that you have the high-level competitive junior. If you're running a high-level program, you obviously have the responsibility to know. Sure, sure. So let's kind of shift and talk about what you're doing with University of Florida right now with the Professional Tennis Management Program. Um, As you were telling me offline, it's a master's level program at Florida. So who's it for? You know, I look at it as actually it's like the MBA for tennis pros is our program. It's the it's how to do tennis leadership. It's how to run a small tennis business, which is really what a director of racket sports does at a club. And in some clubs that are multiple courts, it's not that small. Um, there's It's a huge job to be the leader of the business, but it's less an on-court position, although you're on court. And although you do play, it's not that that's the emphasis at this point of a career. So we take people who have had experience in the tennis industry as a teaching pro, maybe three years at least as a a certified pro, and then they're ready to make the move to leadership. And we educate them about the business, the human capital, the marketing, the finance and accounting, how to build culture. Um, how to add a complementary racket sports and what rationale to use or not use to bring those in as that's becoming more common. Things like that that are just bigger picture and how to do leadership um, of, of, a, of a business. So that's how we, we were given this uh, curriculum was created. At Florida was given it from the USTA and the USPTA that joined up to uh, have a, cur- a committee of 10 or 12 directors of racket sports who said, what are the knowledges that a director needs to know? The mm-hmm. old ma- pattern was that a tennis pro would just work under a director, the apprenticeship model for, anyway, it could be 15 years before you had enough experience that uh, a, a search committee would hire you. And there was really no way to have a credential to know that you had the qualities or not. It was just the, whether you could convince a search committee you were ready but this is actually an education that can verify that, that you are ready. And so we are a professional tennis management program, but not in the sense that many of the others are out in the country, which are more bachelor's level, which are to bring pros, bring uh, players up through to get a college degree in, in business or hospitality so they can actually be a certified tennis pro. So it's, it's building careers in tennis. 
I love it. You know, one of the things we talk about a lot on Parenting Aces is how to take what you learn as a junior tennis player and having gone through the junior development years and the process and maybe going through college recruiting, how do you parlay that into a real job, you know, a real job, air quotes, um, once you're done with your education? Because we know a very, very small percentage of junior players go on to play even college tennis. And then of those players, an even smaller percentage go on to have successful professional tennis careers as players. However, there are lots of other things you can do using your tennis to make a living. And your PTM program is one pathway there. Um, as you mentioned, there are also several undergraduate professional tennis management programs. Can you talk a little more? I know you, you kind of touched on it, but the differences between the undergraduate level programs and the graduate level program at Florida. Well, yeah, at an undergraduate PTM, you're going to go in and have to get your basic, um, you know, 60 hours for your AA, and then you'll go into some specific courses. But it might be that you go into the business school. Well, you could go into the business school, depending on which college you choose, you could go into the business school. And then a, a segment of those courses will be about the business of tennis, but you'll also become a certified pro. Some schools actually have you on court, improving your own game, on court, learning the teaching skills of how to teach, on court, learning how to analyze other players' um, abilities, and on court, running drills. So you actually come out with knowledge of just all sides of tennis in terms of how to string, um, you know, just how to, how to run a program. But you would be educated to the level of being a staff professional at that point. You would be certified and you would know how to run a program, but you would not be the level that you could actually be the leader and actually hire and, you know, build culture. And that would take some experience and some more training. But the, that's this is what I think is great as far as what do you – there are so few people that actually do play in college and actually even less that play professionally, but there could be so many that want to have a career in tennis and have the joy of bringing a game to all ages of people, be outside, have a flexible schedule. It, it really is a very wonderful way to go through um, your career – I, I had one person that I spoke to who's a lawyer and he'd gone through law school, had spent some time, you know, practicing law. And, and then he came back to the world of tennis and he said, it's, you know, I still work as much because it's not a small job, but I really enjoy a lot more. I'm with a lot more people. I'm outside. Every day is different. You know, you think someone wants to go through and become a lawyer, which is wonderful. And I know it's right for some people, but although it's prestigious, it, it might not be as enjoyable as actually being a leader in the tennis world. Right. And I think what's so cool is, you know, we, again, you know, the, the mindset has been either you are a professional tennis player or you are a teaching pro. And those are your two options if you want to stay in tennis. But no, we know there are lots other lots of other career paths that you can take, whether it's working for you know, a manufacturer, whether it's working for one of the organizations, whether it's running a, a club, running a program. Um, there's so many different ways to stay involved in the sport and make a really nice living at it. Right. I mean, there's there's ways to get involved now. Tennis Channel's doing a great job of, of raising awareness of it. 
there's there there are many great positions and what we know about the the tennis industry is there's been a boom since covid there is a definite need for good qualified pros uh, in our industry, and that isn't going to stop anytime soon. We also have um, age out. We have people in our industry that are older, in their 50s or 50 plus, who are going to be retired. Is that older? That's not older. I know. I'd like to say it's not. I guess in our case, maybe I'm just wiser. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. So they're going to be leaving sometime in the next you know, 10 years. And we have positions that need to be filled with you know, capable people and the reality is if you come out of an undergrad PTM program, you're going to make um, between 50 and $60,000 being a, a, a good, consistent, you know, full-time pro somewhere. And a director of racket sports can make six figures easily. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not to sneeze at. And right. it, it, it's, it's an excellent, um, it's lucrative. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's a, but it's also hard. You have to do everything from the psychology of, you know, a six-year-old up to teach her, you know, her or his mother and work with high level juniors and talk to the tennis committee and be able to hire and fire, you know, and be able to clear the, clean the courts and hang windscreens and hire ready help crew to, to erect your air structure. It's, it's a challenging yeah. job. Yeah. So it's not easy. For sure. So for those that are interested in pursuing this pathway, this graduate degree in professional tennis management, what are the qualifications required to be accepted to your program? Well, for our program, they have to have a bachelor's degree and they have to have a 3.0 or we prefer a 3.0 in their last 60 hours of credits. Uh, But that's not hard and fast. Um, and then, the, you know, they could they could come in potentially. There's no GED that is, is required or sorry, GRE that is required. Um, but there's just an application process because we want to ensure that it, you are, um, you know, qualified to succeed. But that's in our master's program. And what we also have to understand is that this USPTA, USTA director of rackets certification is being taught as a continuing education option. So if someone does not want the full 36-hour master's, which in our case, our course, our tennis courses would be six hours of that 36-hour master's, but those six hours have been pulled out. And if you just want to get the director of racket sports certification, you can do that. You have to have three years of experience as a certified elite professional and a letter from a supervisor that says that you have leadership uh, potential and expertise and experience, and you have to be a USPTA elite pro in good standing. You know, uh, you you you're up to date on your continuing education credits. But if you want to do that, you can take it as a continuing education, which it's all self-paced and this is all online. Hmm. But the continuing education means you might be able to complete this in between six to nine months. If you want to work harder, you could probably do a little faster, maybe four months. Uh, But it's basically the equivalent of six hours of master's work that you can take without a bachelor's degree uh, and you can sign up. That is going to start enrolling on June 1st for Florida. But right now you can already enroll in the master's if the master's is something that you want. And there are a lot of people who are uh, coming out of college and they maybe want to do that master's, there's a lot of just feeling that you will have more career opportunities if you get a master's. And for sure in the tennis industry, 
if you have our masters, that will be recognized as a true leadership degree. Uh, people were really, you know, hiring will, I think will be pretty easy for you. Well, and hired. that was going to be my next question is, you know, how are y'all helping the master's level graduates once they are nearing the end of getting that degree? Is there some sort of um, co-marketing effort or something that the program is doing to help these grads actually get hired? Well, yeah, we have considerable, you know, con connections within the industry and um, definitely we take the responsibility. We will want everyone to be getting a position, whether if they're already in a position, if they take our certificate course and they're already in a position and they get our certificate in six months, I'm not sure I can ensure they can get a job in the next two months. But, you know, we're definitely in to try to help them get to that next level. And if you're in our master's program, you know, that will take probably two and a half years to go through. And by then, for sure, we will have connected you. That's one of the things we're doing in our program is we're making sure that we're networking. We can teach you a lot of head knowledge, but what we really want to do is connect you to people and connect you to people who will solve and answer your questions because you may need to go a little deeper in something than we provide, and we want you to know who to talk to. So through our program, we will be using a tool that's sort of a social media-based educational conversation that will connect you to network uh, to industry experts. So there'll be a lot of opportunity for you going forward. Do you see your graduates pursuing careers outside of the club setting, but maybe more in the manufacturing arena or marketing the sport or even, you know, getting a job with, let's say, the tennis channel? I, you know, we I don't know, but I would say yes. I mean, as I said, this is like a, an MBA for tennis. So you're really going to know so much about tennis and so much about business, finance and accounting. I, you know, it's a brand new program, so it's hard to say, but I, I don't know why that would be limiting in any way. And I think you could certainly parlay that in a lot of directions. Sure. How many people are being accepted into your program right now? Well, I know it's master's, still new. Yeah, it's new. So yeah, the, the master's is young. I think we may have five students that have been accepted now. The um, other program, the certificate is open enrollment. It's, it starts constantly. So you could sign up starting June 1st, but you could sign up July 1st. You could, you know, it will, it's whenever you start. And I'm expecting about 20 to 30 to kick off right the 1st of June. So it's, it's going to be exciting. That means those 20 or 30 are going to be networked together, but anybody joining July 1st or August 1st will also join with those people. It's not as if we have a cohort that moves through and then graduates it will be ongoing and, and very uh, moving. It's going to be exciting. And the whole thing is online. So can you talk a little bit about what a, a day, a typical day will look like for the students? Yes, definitely. Uh, some people are intimidated by online learning. I understand that. Um, it is <laughs> it's really, just kind of the way of the world right now. No, it is. It is, it is really highly flexible, which I think that is something that is, you know, one of the pluses that people don't realize, I mean, you know, we all have odd schedules now, so you can really do it at any time. But um, it's essentially you, you will be um, watching a lot of videos that are interviews done. They're recorded and they're done with industry experts on certain subjects. 
Then we have a textbook that's included in it. It's like a text, except it's you don't have to buy the text. It's just all included in the course. Um, and then we will have some projects that are project-based learning. So we'll ask you to really apply what you learn um, and then turn it in and you'll be critiqued. And the you know I have the industry experts that will look at your work. I'll be looking at your work. So it's going to be interactive. But there will be, you know, you'll have to be watching some things and reading some things on your own. But again, this is um, this yellow dig discussion board that we have is where it's going to be very interactive. And you can get on and hear what people are saying about certain subjects. Maybe we'll talk about clay courts or hard courts one time. And you can see, you know, what's going on. You can ask your questions. So it's going to be really fun because we're going to have people in the class on yellow dig. Then we're going to have industry leaders and experts former directors and current directors on there interacting and being able to ask each other's questions. I think we're going to have a little club of, of directors of racket sports together. I love that. What are the requirements for graduation? Uh, well, for the graduation for this is that um, you ultimately have to pass the final exam at uh, 70%. So we do have an exam uh, in the master's, we've broken it into two classes. So there are two two little tests of 60 questions each, multiple multiple choice. But in the uh, other course, you'll do you know one test at the midterm and one test at the final. And yeah, once you've satisfactorily done your projects that you've turned in and then passed the test and kept yourself up to date with your certification, you'll take our uh, certificate of completion back to USPTA for them to give the certified director of racket sports title. So it's an actual, there is a name for what you are when you graduate. Yes, you will be a USPTA certified director of racket sports. And for people who might be on that are PTR certified, we definitely don't want to exclude by any means, but they, there will, there's a, a, system by which they can uh, get an equivalency with USPTA. Okay. So they can contact USPTA, get an equivalency, and then they'll be able to enter the program as well. So not at all exclusive to USPTA. You just have to be a certified pro in one of the two organizations. Got it. What are y'all doing to get the word out to the industry as a whole that First of all, that this program exists. Second of all, what types of qualifications your graduates have to make them attractive to the industry? Shows like interviewing with parenting aces. <laughs> it's the best way there is, isn't that? Lisa? Yeah, of course. So we are, we're doing, there's press releases. There is a lot of information on the USTA website about PTMs, our PTM, as well as the other PTMs. Um, but it is one that's a struggle. We, COVID has made that difficult. We'd like to do some more exposure in, um, you know, publications. I think we're in a Florida tennis publication. But even going to high school um, state events and mm -hmm. USTA events, I think it's so important that parents understand that there is a great career in tennis. And they help their tennis enthusiastic youth, you know, ch children to look at this as an option, as a viable option, and, and they can get a college degree around the country. So it's not as if they're just somebody who's off, you know, teaching tennis. It's not, it's a viable, very lucrative and respectable, responsible, difficult career. So uh, it's something I think the parents need to realize that 
there are ways that, you know, to encourage your child to stay in tennis, even if they're not playing in college or going pro. Right. And we see that quite a bit. I mean, I've talked to so many people over the years who, you know, they were really good juniors. They chose to go to big state schools where they weren't qualified to play on the varsity team, but maybe they got involved at the club level or maybe they were volunteer assistant coaches with the team because they just wanted to be around everybody and be around the sport. And then after college, you know, they found a way to, to get their foot in the door in something related to the sport, whether, you know, for most of those people, it's not in a coaching role because that's not where their interests and their strengths are, but maybe in a broadcast role or maybe in a, you know, like you're saying, a leadership role at a club or getting involved in the industry somewhere else. Um, and I think it's it's really cool to hear those stories because my heart used to break when when my son was still in juniors, you know, and we would hear about these kids a year or two ahead of him who were great junior players who made the decision not to pursue college tennis. And I was like, oh, my God, that would be so awful to put all this work and time and effort in and then have your kid decide not to play college tennis. And, you know, it's over. Well, no, it's not over. There are lots of different paths they can go down that don't necessarily include playing college tennis. Well, they're not. And, and, and more than that, that goes back to the performance psychology side of me that just wants to say, you know, just the idea that they competed in tennis and they did the discipline, they did the emotional control. They, they've done that, you know, I've, I've failed and gotten up and, and moved on mm -hmm. and learned to live with the fear of failure. I mean, these are all things that impact us as adults. But we think that they're just isolated to our sport. And, and then when we quit our sport, we didn't need them anymore. And I argue that's the part I missed out on as a junior tennis player. I thought all of that stress and anxiety had to do with tennis. So I said, you know, I'll graduate as a senior and, and I won't be stressed out anymore. Well, if that's not a joke, I don't know what is. But, you know, you think that, that those are isolated. They're not. That's why I've become so passionate about helping athletes manage their emotions in sport, learn to fail, learn to handle, you know, expectations, but be able to put them aside and not focus on them, perform well in the moment, to just be that top competitive player because they learn all these transferable life skills. Mm -hmm. And then they go over to life. Now, they may still use them when they're coaching tennis. They may still use them when they're just in conflict at work. You know, they may still use them at some career outside of tennis, but they should take advantage of them and not consider them isolated to their sport. So there's, yeah, there's so many good reasons to play sport. And then I think so many good reasons to make a career in sport, because like I'm doing now is I'm educating coaches. And I, I love that idea because coaches are just such an influence on the next gen. I feel like, you know, if I influence a coach and a coach can do something better than they're influencing their 400 kids that, you know, that makes me feel like I'm kind of doing something. Well, you're kind of doing a lot. <laughs> Trying, I don't know, you know, try yeah. to do your part. Yeah. Let's go back to your senior year of college. Cause I, I really want to dig into what happened. You gain all America status at the end of your junior year. This is proud moment. Obviously your parents are super proud. And what happened that made you decide that, you know what? I've got one year left. I'm done playing tennis. That's it. 
Yeah, it's perfectly good logic if you're a senior in college. Uh, I thought it works for me. There's no logic there, but, you know, we think a lot when we're, you know, 21. Now, what the story really goes back a little farther is I, I realized, well, I didn't, I didn't realize it until I was about 35 what had happened. But when I was about 17, I think I was a, one of the top in my uh, Missouri Valley in, in that region. Then I go to play as an 18-year-old, and I'm the expected person to win. And I thought, that's pressure. Somebody's going to knock me off. And I thought, you know, I don't really need to play in the Valley anymore. I already have identified Florida as my school. I'm just going to go to Florida. You know, I just dodged it. I didn't want to lose. I don't want to beat number two. So I went to Florida. Well, then you're a freshman. You're the low kid on the totem pole. Nobody knows you. So you free, feel free. You just play. So then I come back and I, I did. I played Greg. I was number six singles, but I was number one doubles. And I good season. Felt good about it. Then I go back as a sophomore and I'm one of the top three people coming back and I have some pressure on me and expectation and, you know, and, and so I'm not doing very well again. I'm kind of feeling like I felt when I was 18 and I didn't know how to manage it. I felt great in doubles. I was always a good doubles player. I just loved the partner. Could relax there, played pretty, played well there, but singles, I was like a ball of nerves. So by spring, I really worked myself up that my coach just said, you know, hey, just you play doubles. You've got the doubles going on. We can handle the singles. You play doubles. And I was actually known, I was selected all SEC as a doubles player, and I almost felt guilty. I was like, gosh, I, I only did half the job. I should, you know, but, you know, I mean, you did the best you could. I just, I just, I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't really, didn't know what to do. So anyway, I went home, sophomore, junior, I was like, all right, I'm getting over this. I'm going to play great my junior year. Tried to remove all expectations and just relax. So basically, I didn't do much in the summer. I didn't have anybody to talk to, but I just relaxed. Came back fresh, had a good junior year, solid. Probably could have won NCAAs as a junior in doubles, which was that disappointing. We were ranked number one at times in the season but ended up, you know, top eight, which was good enough for, for all America status. And I, I felt really good. And I, I can't remember my ranking in singles, but it was, it was respectable. It was top 15, I think. So I felt really good. It was kind of like I had overcome and I was at the top of the mountain and then I got ready to, yeah, like June, June and July after that. And I think I will have a lot of expectations senior year. People will, I, I'm a, I'm a returning, I, you know, I don't want to go out anything less than the top and I'm at the top now. And we got a new coach that year. And I think I rationalized, you know, I'm just ready to be done. Mm. So I don't know how I, somebody didn't kick me, but they should have. And I ended up going in and, and just giving up my scholarship and I graduated a semester early. I took a ton of classes that fall and I, I left the university in December of that year. And I really didn't think that much of it until later on. And I realized probably in my mid twenties, I realized I had that same problem just in other things. I was fearing failure and I didn't know how to manage it. And I also was always trying to go back to tennis where I had built my ego and so in my mid-20s, I hadn't played tennis for a while, but I was like, I, I kind of got to go back to that because I felt good when I was playing and I want to build my – I had this counterfeit identity is what we would say in, in the psychology world, and, and I built it on, on tennis. And I didn't know how to handle that adversity and being able to focus on you're okay even if you lose. Mm -hmm. So that's what do what you happened. think? What do you think went missing – 
for you as you were coming up in the sport that you didn't have that information or that self-belief or whatever it is that causes you, you know, to form that, as you call it, counterfeit identity. That's the first time I've heard that term. That's interesting because we've yeah. talked before on this podcast and in articles about how important it is for our, our junior players to have interests outside of tennis, that they are not only tennis players. They're human beings who play tennis, but they also do these other things, right? You know, their well, their sons and daughters or their siblings or their musicians too, or whatever. I 100% agree and would coach that as well today. And I had that. So okay. I had great interest. In fact, that's what I ended up going to after I left college. And I ended up getting it back into journalism. My father was a journalist and I worked for the Kansas City Star as a writer and an editor for a couple of years. I felt like I had life outside of tennis. And in fact, that's kind of why I was okay with leaving it because I was like, I can try some other things. So that wasn't it. I think what happened is I had early success. And when you have early success, you expect it of yourself and everybody else expects it of you. And you really don't know anything else besides that. So you don't know how to manage with loss. And isn't it the most common question? Well, how'd you do? Did you yeah. win? Nobody wants to say, well, yeah, I lost. I mean, but I had too much. Yeah, success was what fed me. And what I didn't ever learn was to have a mastery culture. I did never have learned to say, I just want to get a little bit better every day. That should have been my definition of success. Instead, my definition of success was always winning. Always that I couldn't lose and have improvement and be valued. So, and I didn't see. And was that self? Was that self-imposed? Yes. In, good question. Yes. I think coaches can do that to us. And I had coaches, I had a great coach who was super nurturing and kind, not at all negative, except he did a lot of saying, well, you're better than she is. You should be fine. You're better than she is. And I'm thinking, well, now I lose to her every time because I can't play when I play her. And I'm not better than she is. I'm not, it's nice for you to say that, except I haven't beaten her ever. So I didn't really <laughs> understand that. But no, he was a generally super nice guy. I think it was largely self-imposed. And it was because the culture around us just talks too much about winning. And unless we very intentionally as coaches change that and make it into mastery and make it something that you only are a success if you can manage your emotions on the court. You only are a success if you can... It, you know, get a little bit better every day. So just look at, and every loss is just information. Loss is not a slam to your ego as I took it. I took it as like crushing. Well, it's just information. It's, you know, and I probably did a little bit of this, you know, I was probably pretty type A on tests and I, you know, I didn't like getting anything less than an A either. And, you know, it, it was a personality, but I think it was largely adopted internally because of early success, but then I felt the world expecting it of me. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't really, that's why when I went to Florida and I was a new kid on the block, it felt like freedom, but it's right. not too long right. before you begin to feel it even in those environments as, as my story kind of explains. So how do we as parents and how do coaches help our junior players kind of work around that because I'm, I'm not going to say avoid it because I don't think anybody can hundred percent avoid it, but 
you have to learn how to manage it in order to find joy in continuing to compete. Yes, you do. And what I try to get athletes to do when I do my performance coaching today, I start out a lot of times with what's your reason for competing? And I would have had to answer early on. My reason for competing was to win, to get my ranking up, to be recognized, you know, all those, you know, maybe to earn a college scholarship, which is, you know, this one definition of recognition. But what it needs to be is the realization of tennis is serving you to build you as a person. So this is to your argument. You're not all going to go play in college. You're not all going to play pro. You're building, you're using this small amount of time in your life, whether it's 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, to help provide you to be a better person in the other two thirds of your life. Mm-hmm. Andre Agassi once I said this, you know, you can't let this small t- amount of time be, you know, not fuel you for the other two thirds. Because most of us, even if we're the greatest player, most aren't going to last like Roger until you're 40 some. You're going to be done in 20 years at that high, high level. And let's use it. So let's use it to learn how to emotionally control. Let's use it to learn how to deal with failure. Let's use it to be positive, even amid difficult situations. Let's, you know, so it's, it's the coaches and the parents need to keep it up with what I define as success is that you have kept your wits about you while you're out there playing. I mean, kids don't, shouldn't be allowed to have the, the, you know, outbursts of negativity. They need to understand the reason they do that is they feel threatened. Mm -hmm. So then you have to ask them, what are you threatened by? Are you threatened by that person's forehand? No, you're threatened by losing. So then you have to realize, well, what's losing going to say to you as a person? Well, they'll explain it's like, Oh, I feel like I'm less of a person. Oh, I'm embarrassed. Oh, I'm a, but you process it down to realize Losing's not this animal. It's like this thing that is so scary. Losing's really just information. That means your forehand needs to get a little stronger tomorrow if you want to beat that girl or you need, but it's just information. And it's, it's just, it's really talking it through. And I, I have parents today that say, you know, if you don't have results, I'm going to stop paying for your tennis. And I'm like, for me, if I'm that athlete, what's results? If I win this weekend, is that good enough? Is that, does that mean I have to win next weekend? Does that mean I have to win next month? There's no end in that. If I'm a parent that says that type of thing to the child, the child is going, well, that's a never-ending treadmill of I can't probably do that good enough. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a scary reality if I'm an athlete. I, I can't necessarily please my parent. Right. So but you I think can't do that to them as parents. True. However, and and I just kind of want to play devil's advocate here for a second, you know, for a parent to say, you know, if if you don't have results, I'm not going to continue to play. Maybe the parent isn't talking about wins and losses. Maybe the parent is talking about some other result, which is, you know, controlling your emotion on the court, giving 100 percent effort, um, showing good sportsmanship to your opponent. Um you know, making sure you're warming up properly and cooling down properly before and after matches throughout a whole tournament. Maybe that's what the parent means, but a lot of times the kids here win, right? Results I, equal win. I absolutely, I'm 100% fine if that's the conversation and it's that clear. And then 
the parent doesn't trump that by saying, you know, what was the score? And I can't believe you lost two and two. You know, it's kind of <laughs> yeah. like if you say one thing, you have to own it and believe it. And I think there's a little bit of that that gets confusing. But no, I 100% agree with you. And it's just that we have to give an athlete a chance to relax and realize that they're going to have good days and bad days. But when, you know, it's like if somebody's drowning and you just push them down. And I think sometimes athletes are just agonized over their own results. And then a parent comes in and says their comments. And that's just like devastating even more. And and the athlete was trying. The athlete was doing a lot of positives. Now, maybe there are other things that can be done better. But again, it's just it's nurturing them a little gently. It's listening to them. It's helping them understanding how they feel threatened. And it's that threat that's causing them to behave as they are. And we need to get to the threat. We need to talk it through to get to the threat, which is what I try to do with athletes, to really talk through what they're feeling and then get clarity around it and say, well, all right, if this is our definition of success, mom needs to have that same and dad needs to have that same. We all get on the same page. That's when the athlete feels free to say, I just need to play tennis here. And there's not this external that's, that's the external you need to remove, which are that, but then plenty of athletes do it to themselves and we need to get them to stop crucifying themselves. And that's controlling their own inner thoughts, their own self-talk. Yeah. And it's a huge challenge because a lot of kids, you know, like you said, it's an internal struggle. If I lose, I suck. I'm a bad person. I don't deserve this. My parents are going to be angry. And all of that is self-induced. It's not anything necessarily that a parent has done or a coach has done. Some kids are just wired that way. And so the communication becomes so crucial, you know, delving down to what is causing that fear, as you're saying, Kim, and understanding and helping the athlete to understand what's going to be different tomorrow if you win today or if you lose today. How's that? And and what's going to be different next week if you win today or lose today? And what's going to be different next month and next year and 10 years from now? And drill down to helping them understand that the wins and losses, they're going to come and go. Those are not the important things. The important things are the work ethic, the behavior, the confidence, the you know, development of the whole human as a good whole human that's going to go out into the world and make a positive difference. So absolutely, because that's the ultimate goal is what do you want? You know, the old Jim Lair question, what do you want? Who do you want to be around, you know, have around you on your deathbed? You know, your friends and relationships or your pile of trophies. And it's those skills we learn in that heat of it that make us better people that help us build relationships. And that's yeah, what it's about. But we lose sight of that sometimes in athletics. Yeah, we do. So Kim, if you could send one message to the tennis parents out there to help them help their junior players, what would that be? I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the best thing you can do is hire a really good coach, talk to them about what your goals are, Make sure they see things. You can all see this holistically and then allow them to do their job. And you be the one that does show up to watch. I don't like the parent that doesn't ever watch and says, you know, I can't go or my player won't let me watch. I don't deal with that. Players need to learn how to manage. Their head needs to be between the lines anyway and not worried about what's going on outside the fence. And then mom and dad just say, I love watching you play. 
I love watching you play. What do you need? To, what do you want for lunch? Yeah. You know, or let's go get some ice cream. But it's that support role of, of helping them, you know, just be there and encourage because we need to be told that, you know, I love watching you play. Some days aren't that good and that's okay. I trust you that you'll figure it out. And they go to their coach and figure it out. They go internal and they figure it out. But it's showing the trust that you believe that they can and will. And it might not be today. It might not be tomorrow. They might not be there yet. That's the best word ever is yet. I'm not there yet, but I'm going to get there. And that's the big thing about psychology. The two most important things are focus and belief. And focus is is the ability to, you know, tune out all the negative. But belief is that, you know, I, I can get there. I may not be there yet, but I can get there and on your own pace and have forgiveness if you're not there today. And then, yeah, ultimate cheerleader is that parent behind. I love it. I love it. All right, Kim, let's circle back to the PTM program at at Florida. If people are interested in getting more information on the program, how do they do that? Well, they could go to the... um, online, you know, the Shawnee Mission, University of Florida uh, online, but the easiest answer would probably be just to email Kim Bastable at ufl.edu. And I will lead them to, if they're interested in the certificate program, that's not live yet. So that I need to get their name on a list and I'll send them information. And there is the master's is already online. You can find it on the UF online site, but yeah, Kim Bastable at ufl.edu. And I'd love to have people just ask questions about my PTM, other PTMs. We want, we want youth, young people that are just interested in the game of tennis, and they don't have to be a phenomenal player. They, you know, we've had a lot of good teaching pros that, you know, ultimately by the NTRP, you know, there may be 4.0 or even less that are teaching different. Some of the early amounts of uh, teaching is now more that group teaching, which is almost like a glorified gym teacher is the way we want tennis exposed to the masses. So you don't have to be a huge, great player to do it. If you love the game and you want to be a part of it, there are careers for you. So my PTM or another, we can get you a college degree or a master's degree and you'll be well-respected in the industry. Love it. We will have the link to your email and to the Florida website and the program on the Florida website on parentingaces.com and in the show notes. So make sure to check that out. Kim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. The first time we talked was just a phone call and we were supposed to talk for five minutes. I think we were on the phone for like an hour. We just, <laughs> you start going down that it's rabbit weird. hole. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, what you do is awesome. I, you know, like I said, the, the whole idea that my mom was talking to the person next to her yeah. and it's still going on. I mean, what you're providing to parents. Yeah, the minute I learned about your program, I sent it out to so many people. Tremendous service. So it's fun to be a part of this. Well, thank you. And thanks again for coming on. To my listeners, thank you for tuning in. We will catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at parentingaces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.